I think in our psyches, when we see something big, it's instantly intimidating or scary. Right. Yeah, there's just right. a threat, a threat register there. Yes. Probably, you know, going back you know, thousands of years for survival reasons, it's yeah. probably not a bad threat response to have, you know? Yeah, it's instinctual. Uh, yeah. But, but I think, I don't know, I think there's a reason Roald Dahl wrote BFG. You know, yeah, no, that, absolutely. Is it, there's a, in my experience, a lot of big people are very gentle. When you're on stage, like any world is possible and you've got permission to do all sorts of things that, well, in my case, I didn't give myself permission to do in regular life. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. Welcome to the first episode of the Getting Better Acquainted Edinburgh season. This week we're going to have two episodes, one today and one on Friday, which are conversations with different true storytellers who in the past I have booked for stand-up tragedy. And stand-up tragedy is the show that I am taking up to the Edinburgh Festival this year. So that's going to be on from the 3rd till the 14th of August at the Fiddler's Elbow downstairs. 6.30 till 7.30 every evening. We're going to be bringing an hour of tragedy which will feature true storytellers but also comedians, musicians, cabaret acts, spoken word artists and everything in between. And it's good. we've got some really great people on the bill. We've got Robin Ince, we've got Sarah Campbell, we've got magicians, we've got a harpist, we've got it all and you should come along it's going to be an hour of tragedy but if you can't make it up to the edinburgh festival never fear go over to www.standuptragedy.co.uk or find stand up tragedy on itunes or soundcloud and every day you'll be able to listen to a different tragic act which will be recording mostly while we're there and that'll be going out as part of a daily podcast that stand-up tragedy are doing and the daily version of that podcast will be starting on the 2nd of august which is the day that my team and me will be traveling up there and that episode features the comedian josie long who's telling a, a really great true story really and in a comic way so the show will be bringing you acts of tragedy will also be getting interactive and talking to people up in edinburgh so it will give you a sort of flavor of what the edinburgh festival is all about and giving you a flavor of what the edinburgh festival is all about is what getting better acquainted is going to be doing for the two weeks that i'm up there so i'm going to be releasing getting better acquainted specials from the edinburgh festival i can't tell you anything about them i'm not in edinburgh yet so everything's going to be recorded there and I don't know exactly what's going to be recorded so I can't really give you any teasers for what's coming up apart from it's the unknown the unknown is coming up so that's one of the things we'll be getting better acquainted with I guess over the next few weeks there's going to be a quick turnaround to those shows so they may not be as high a standard as some of my other stuff or maybe that quick turnaround will make me bold and uh even better at editing and, and, and pithy or something who knows we shall see also if you are in edinburgh i'm going to be doing a couple of live recordings of getting better acquainted up there 
I'm going to be doing them on the 12th and the 13th of August from 1.40 till 2.40 at the Banshee Labyrinth. And I haven't got any confirmed guests for that yet. I've got a maybe. I don't want to reveal the maybe until it's a definite, but I've got a maybe. As you know, Getting Better Acquainted is not a show about famous people, but since we're in the Edinburgh Festival, I want to get some conversations with people who are kind of representative and about what the festival experience is all about. So I'll be going for performer slash producer type guests. So that's what you're going to get. Don't know if they'll come out while I'm in Edinburgh. Probably will as part of the Edinburgh Festival season. So come along and join me for that. Both Stand Up Tragedy and Getting Better Acquainted at the festival will be free. They're part of the PBH Free Fringe. So come along and see some tragedy or hear some conversation for free. You know, there'll be a hat passed around at the end asking for donations. But what you put in that hat, if anything, is really up to you. Also, this conversation you're about to hear talks a lot about Spark London. I'm also going to be doing a Spark London true storytelling workshop up in Edinburgh. That is on the 8th of August at the Fiddler's Elbow downstairs at 12.15 till 1.15. So that'll just be an hour of getting to tell our true stories and talking a little bit about what true storytelling is, in my opinion, and how you get good stories out of yourself, in my opinion. So that's basically it. This is a really great conversation. Within this conversation, I've also embedded a clip from Stand Up Tragedy. So that will also give you an idea of the kind of performance that you could get if you come along. I would apologise for talking lots and lots, but I fear that this is going to be the way it's going to go for a few weeks in that I'm going to be recording things quickly with a quick turnaround which are current and have announcements involved in so you're probably going to hear hearing a lot more of me yabbering half planned and unfocusedly into a microphone I hope you will bear with me the conversations will still be as captivating as usual thanks very much for listening recording now and I may move the microphone around to work out sure I don't I think it's going to be a, a might have to slightly reposition it <laughs> to accommodate our, uh, your your height. I do slouch when I'm sitting there. Ah, oh, that's good. That, that should be good. I, I find that annoyingly my voice is always really loud, so I'm always happy to have it far away from me because I'm I don't know whether it's up that I project or I shout. Or I don't know. But You've I got could, a lot of timber in your voice. Mm, yeah. That sounds nice. Yeah. No, yeah. Like that. That's, that's great. Well, I'll use that as a, what do they call it, pull quote. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today, we're getting better acquainted with Alan. Hello, Alan. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm good, yeah. It's always a bit kind of weird to say it, sort of, we've been chatting for around about an hour uh, and have, we've had lunch together, but then suddenly I'm like, hello, and <laughs> we've already said hello, so that's always a funny moment. Yeah, so we're sitting here in your house, which is always a, a, a pleasure to be doing these conversations in people's homes, because 
that really means that for me at least I'm getting you know better acquainted with the person in lots of ways because I've never been in your house before we don't really know each other very well oh. so that's gonna that's... get out <laughs> <laughs> yeah what are you doing here yeah. um, <laughs> why did I just feed you yeah that's right <laughs> I sort of feel like it's kind of it's nice to be in somebody else's habitat because that means that that they're that I'm the one who's like less at ease when people come over to to my place. It's more like you know, I'm comfortable. I haven't had to go anywhere, but but uh, but 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 then my guest who I want to be comfortable is is kind of you know figuring me out, which is so it's a different kind of a vibe, and I like that. Um, the first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? Right, how do I know you? I think I met you on the first storytelling night. I think it might have been the first storytelling night I ever did. Okay, so you hadn't told... Brixton. In, in London, the first... Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you told stories before that in other parts of the world, I guess. Yeah, yeah, back in my hometown, Perth. Yeah. Yeah. But the first time you told a story in London was at Spark. It was at yes. the open mic in Brixton, I yeah. think. Yeah, I'm and pretty yeah. sure it was. And I saw you then and I thought, wow, this guy, you know, the story you told that time, it blew me away. Uh, I think it blew all of us at at spark away we were like wow and it was a surprise as well that's the best thing about uh, the open mics is you never know who's going to get up and tell a story and even though we're called spark london i mean majority of the stories that people tell aren't anything to do with london uh your story being one of one of those because you're from australia i'm sure people will have noticed that already <laughs> what i really related to in that first story as well is you were sort of talking about being a an outsider and a sort of geek sort of like I don't geeks a loaded word that can be offensive, but these days it's supposedly reclaimed. Um, <laughs> so uh, so I mean, and I and I sort of related to that, you know, as, as somebody who'd also been sort of an outsider and uh, and had had geeky pursuits. Was it model aeroplanes or something like that that you made, or was it what was it that you you made growing up? Yes, yeah, I played played chess and and was fascinated with World War Two fighter planes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had like fantasy mi- miniatures and painted them and stuff and all that stuff for a while. I never really got into that gaming stuff. I couldn't really get into the yeah. dice rolling stuff, but I was kind of interested in 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 that kind of area of things and sort of that sort of marked me out as a geek I guess yeah. uh, before I'd even heard like I'd never heard that word till <laughs> kind of like five years ago when everyone started saying it was cool and then I was like oh that's what geek really means I see I see but uh, certainly I was an outsider uh, they weren't as yeah I didn't get the word geek thrown at me very often but I, uh, I did have other words thrown at me quite frequently <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah so I know I mean I really related to that story and we really liked and then um, you did a story for us at the Canal Cafe Theatre our curated night where people rehearsed in advance and I think you you blew the audience away there and I loved that story so much that I was like please come and do stand-up tragedy uh, for me and and you 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 uh, weren't good enough to say yes to that and then that again like I mean, for me, that your story was the highlight of the stand-up tragedy night that you did. I mean, that you were performed at. Like yeah. your story was my highlight moment. Which is not to say I didn't really like a lot of the acts that night. I did, and it was a really strong night. But, it was a strong. Uh, but your story, I mean, it 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 was just like you had us all living your life with you. I think in the audience. Like, hello. hello. 
So it's uh, 1984 in Perth, Western Australia, and I was 15 years old. And, and you will remember that age, you know. Uh, the, the cool guys would talk about going to parties and, and being drunk and getting with girls. And, and I, w- I would listen in on this and, and compare it to, to where my life was at, which was uh, chess, um, looking at pictures of World War II fighter planes and, uh, and building Lego, you know. Um, I, I had only one friend, Tony Drayton, and uh, he only had one friend too. Um, we, we sort of had this rivalry uh, where we, we, each of us would see who could avoid being the last one picked for any sporting team. Uh, because we went to a very competitive uh, all-boys private grammar school and uh, it was, you know, obviously pretty exclusive, but I came from a totally different world to the rest of that school. Uh, um, uh, I was just part of a single-parent family, and uh, back then, you know, there was still a lot of stigma around that, and uh, basically mum worked night shift and put every cent she had into our education, my brother, my sister and I. Uh, So as a result, you know, we didn't have much. Uh, We had to live in subsidised government housing, and that house we had was really, really crappy. Uh, We didn't even own a car. And uh, we're on the other side of town, so it was quite a a bus ride to school each day. Um, So although I didn't fit in, I really liked it there and I desperately wanted to stay at the school. But I knew starting year 10 that this would be my final year because the fees just kept going up and the reality was mum just couldn't afford it anymore. But as luck would have it, uh, the year 10 social was coming up. And uh, this was my final chance to be included, to be one of the guys... And uh, basically our school uh, invited the Year 10s from an all-girls school and to, to come to our school uh, for a, a disco that was going to go for three hours on a Saturday night. Brilliant. And, and basically our classes turned into a boiling pot of testosterone as uh, all the cool guys talked about, you know, the girls they knew from that other school and which ones like them or their mates or which girlfriend they were bringing from another school. I thought, how many girlfriends do these guys have? You know, I realised that I needed some serious help. So I talked to the only person I could trust, my friend, Tony Drayton. You see, Tony's father was a reverend, and so that meant Tony had to go to Sunday school, and that's where he met girls. (laughs) In fact, he'd already met a girlfriend there just recently, and she was going to the exact school that was coming to the social. So I thought maybe, maybe Tony could find a girlfriend for me. So for weeks, I just pestered him, you know. Um, you know, I, I asked him, you know, are, are there any other girls in Sunday school, you know, any, any single ones? Um, what, what, what about your girlfriend, you know? Does, does she have any friends going to the social... And bingo, she did. There was a friend at, at his girlfriend's school coming to the social. Her name was Nadine. And after a little bit of coaxing, she agreed to meet me at the social. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what she looked like. And uh, I realised I I didn't know how to talk to girls. Uh, I didn't even know how to act cool. You know, the the other guys, they thought it was hilarious that Tony Drayton, of all people, was setting me up with a girl. (laughs) But I didn't care because I had a date. And all I had to do was get to the social and I'd be like, one of the guys, this was going to be so cool. Now, obviously, uh, Mum couldn't afford to, to buy me a new outfit, 
So I thought it would be sensible to just wear the best clothes I had. And, uh, you know, come the big day or night, as the case may be, I got out my only jacket. It was my favourite. It was brown and had, like, light beige flecks woven through it. And uh, it was polyester lining, so, you know, when you slid into it, it felt really smooth. Now, of course, I had been growing a lot that year, so the sleeves were a bit short. But um, I just thought if I adjusted my posture, <laughs> it would probably look OK. And uh, the, the pants I had, really good quality, you know, and the, and the perfectly ironed creases right down the middle. I had my favourite caramel brown leather shoes. Hush Puppies were the brand. And uh, no laces, no, just zips and Velcro tabs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had my favourite big collared cream shirt button up down the centre, you know, pretty sensible. It was actually my older brother's. It was a few years old, but it was still in very good condition. And, uh, you know, I I realised, you know, I didn't have the outgoing personality for an outrageous hairdo, you know, so I just made sure I just had my normal hairdo and I just made sure that the part was perfectly straight. (laughs) And altogether, I thought I looked pretty smart, you know. Oh, and the only thing that ruined it was we had to take a plate of food and Mum insisted on me taking something healthy, which was brown bread sandwiches with cheese and Vegemite. Um, yeah, if you're not sure, Vegemite's like supercharged Marmite, but, you know. So, anyway, uh, the big night's there. Um, oh, buses in our area, they, they finished at uh, about five o'clock and um, we, we didn't own a car, you know, so mum called for a cab and great, it was going to be here in 15 minutes. But it wasn't. Another 15 minutes went by, there's still no cab. Mum called again and half an hour later... Still, the, the cab hadn't arrived. I was just thinking, please, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on. It's got to be here, it's got to be here. Any second now, any second now. Mum called again, and as she's explaining the situation to the, the operator for like the third time, any distant engine noise, I'm looking up and down the street, and I'm thinking, the cab's got to be here soon. But, but we both knew what was going on. We knew what the operator wasn't saying. See, our area, you know, was rough and a couple of neighbours had a reputation for, for jumping out on cab fares and one time a driver even got assaulted. So, you know, the drivers figured, what are, what are the actual chances? You know, they, they didn't believe that there was a kid in this area, on this street, going to a grammar school on a Saturday night. So there I am, looking smart, with my plate of cheese and Vegemite sandwiches and my mum walking up to the nearest highway. We figure it's the only option left, right? Uh, We've got to try and hail a cab in the passing traffic, but none of them would stop. And the the sun's gone down, and uh, I'm making, like, happy chit-chat with my mum, trying to pretend that everything's okay. Inside my head, there's another conversation going on. What's Nadine going to think? Um, what, what do I say to her? You know, I hope she doesn't think that I, that I stood her up. I mean, this just isn't fair. I mean, why does it always have to be this way? You know, I hate it that we don't have any money. I, I hate it that we're not normal. And I really hate that I have to stand here with these stupid sandwiches. Eventually, a cab stopped. And I got in and I couldn't believe it. You know, it was awesome. I had the whole back seat to myself. It was a little bit bouncy in the middle. And then the ride to the social, you know, it was quiet and smooth. 
And then the driver, he was, he was a nice guy, you know? And he was a good driver too. You could, you could tell uh, just the way he was holding the steering wheel, you know, and he was, he was relaxed and, and in control. And I wondered, what would it be like to have a dad driving? I got to the social and I was nearly two hours late. And the senior master looked at me really weird and asked if I was okay, you know, if it was a problem. I said, no, 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 so, sorry, sir, sorry for being late. No, I'm okay, thanks. I took the sandwiches in, I put them down on the table next to some party pie crumbs and these, these little metal cups that had, like, pink mayonnaise and bits of lettuce in them. And the music it drew me into the main hall and there's Tony. Shit! He, he's dressed like one of the guys from Duran Duran. He, he looks really cool. How did that happen? His girlfriend, she's... She's got this beautiful smile and she, she's dressed like a movie star and he's got his arm around her and, and she's like leaning into him and they're laughing and, man, that must be a great Sunday school. <laughs> I walked straight up to Tony and um, he tried to introduce me to his girlfriend and uh, I, I just tried to explain what was, what was going on, you know. It was like it wasn't my fault, you know. It was just that cab wouldn't come. I mean, you know, you know how it is, you know. I mean, we don't have a car. But where, where's Nadine, you know? Is, is she all right? Do you, do you think I'd still be able to talk to her? You know, is, is she angry at me? Where, where is she? He just points. I look over and there's a girl walking towards her. That, that must be Nadine. I, I don't know what to say. But I figure I just, I just got to be a man. I, I just got to tell her the truth and it should be okay, right? Oh, hi, my name's Alan. I'm the guy who's supposed to meet you. I'm so... She didn't even look at me. In, in fact, she, she turned away and sort of put her nose up in the air. I, I think she was really annoyed. I, I didn't want to leave it like that. I, I tried to go back to Tony to ask him his advice. You know, he's obviously cool, um, but he was too busy having fun. For the last hour of the social, I watched... Nadine and Tony and his girlfriend and a couple other people just sort of dance in a circle and I hovered around the outside a couple of times. I, I just wanted to explain to Nadine, you know, just have that chance. And I just needed to, to get eye contact with her, so I just kept waiting for her to look at me and just give me that permission, you know, give me the little in. But she never did. And I kept trying to understand why she wouldn't talk to me, but I couldn't figure it out. I mean, was, was it because I was late or because I was me? Thanks. Because one of the things I, I say about Stand Up Tragedy is I want, like, the tagline is cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry, um, which is kind of a nice bit of PR, I guess. But, but you know, people did cry uh, in your story, mm. which, was, which is what I had always hoped would happen in the, in the nights. So you were the first time I got to actually have that and then the next act after you was a very funny comedian well there was music in between but so people did have that experience of going really like sad and then becoming really happy yeah I'm almost crying now just remembering it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's a story that like what I like about that story is I mean it just feels like it's a very untold story like it's a, a story about experiences that's very untold this is something I've been thinking about storytelling in general. The more specific you make your story, the more universal it kind of becomes, mm. uh, which is exciting. It's kind of about being not, a, you know, being a, a, a young adolescent trying to work out 
women, but it's also a story about being kind of uh, poor, I guess. Again, I'm using all of the like all of these stigmatizing <laughs> words. No, no, it's, it's true. It's, yeah, it's definitely a story about yeah going without. Yes, in, in an environment where there was excess. Yeah. And I mean, and I have lots of conversations on on this show actually about class. Everybody says that the UK is a very class obsessed culture, but what was you know fascinating for me about your story is it was you know it's set in Perth in Australia, and yet there's a very similar thing it feels to me going on in terms of class. I mean, you were at a private school, is that right? Yeah, yeah. We back home we call it a private school, and uh, yeah, it was all boys grammar school, so it was. One of the most exclusive schools in Perth, yeah. And did you have to do, like, sit an exam to get in there? Uh, no, you just had to... It's very competitive to get in. You just have to be listed, sort of, almost from birth to get in, which which my father had done for some unknown reason. He picked that school. Right. I don't know why. But he, he left just a couple of years after that, but our names remained on the register. And then Mum decided to send us there. But she... Every cent she earned went into our schooling. Right. So we had, the rest of our lives, we had very, very little. And we lived in government housing and uh, all of that. Just didn't even have a car. So it was all so that, yeah, we could get to that And school. were you aware of how much, like, she was having to sort of, how you were all going out with her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we could tell, you know. We saw, I mean, because... Our prim- the primary that was a high school that I went to that for for Guildford Grammar, but in primary school we were just at the local one, which was you know pretty poor sort of school, and yeah, even the most of the poor kids had had more than we did, so we 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 knew that we yeah. <laughs> we went down the yeah. bottom of the ladder, and it yeah. must have been I mean, and it, part of the story suggests this, but it must have been very strange being in a environment with like being in a school with people who were well off I guess yeah but having nothing at home I mean that yeah. would have made made it kind of you much more aware of of what you didn't have than if you were in a place where everybody was the same and everybody was struggling then you wouldn't it wouldn't have even been such an issue I guess yeah yeah that's right I think that was the the hardest thing you know it's like everybody seemed to have so much and they had it easily you know it's like I mean there was a lot less consumerism back then than there is now but still at the time it seemed like a lot I still remember the first kids bringing their their cassette Walkmans to school and how cool that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I got one six years later when I was twenty one. <laughs> I was working. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, I guess, and that's the other part of the story that that was so moving and so poignant. I think is that. Is the, is the absence of your if, of your father, and mm. you, if, like the the bit that that really the, the two bits that get to me about that get me in, in that story is I mean there's the the kind of the, the you've got this brilliant last line of you know yeah was it was it because I was late or because it was me yeah mm. and that really gets me because I I think we can all relate to that like where you've where you don't know if someone's angry with you because of the situation or because there's something deeply flawed in yourself. Yeah. And that's why that was so moving. But the, the, the other part that, that really kind of gets got me anyway personally is because you're going to a school dance and you're late because the taxi doesn't turn up because it doesn't want to come to the poor area. Mm. And you guys have to go out and flag down a taxi. And 
when you get into the taxi and you're traveling on your own to the school de- dance with this uh, taxi driver, you're kind of imagining like w- how it would be to be being driven by your father, like if you had your father around, and yeah. that 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 is probably the bit that that, that that gets me the most. I mean, I'm like I'm almost welling up now, like describing yeah. it. I didn't I didn't experience it. Yeah. It's hard to sort of ask questions about absence <laughs> do you know what I mean like how does what, what is the experience of absence like but it it seems to me that you have like had like that when you were growing up that was quite uh, big in your mind like that you didn't have money and you didn't have a father around mm. it, it was a very very powerful and uh, long lasting impact on my life because no, at the at the time, there was only one other uh, kid in my class in primary school whose parents uh, ended up separating. Uh, but that was a little bit later. But other than that, even kids who were dirt dirt poor, and I mean we had we at least had clothes and shoes, right? And yeah. There was other kids who didn't even have that. Yeah, right. Even, especially in winter. But even they had a dad. Mm. And um, it was just at, at that time in history where people didn't split up much. I mean, now it's it's pretty common. It's, it's quite accepted or understood, you know. Yeah. But I think back then I just got the impression that it was, you know, it made us even more weird or geeky or back then the word was dork. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dorky. But, uh, yeah, um, and I think... I, I suppose I spent all my childhood trying to understand why it happened. Like, yeah, I just didn't get that. And, uh, I mean, in my heart I knew why, because Dad was violent. And uh, so we were actually better off that he wasn't there. Yeah. So my rational side was always saying that, you know, explaining that situation to myself and saying, well, you know, <laughs> thank Christ he's not here. But you know, it's about a two- or three-year period there from about eight to ten there's quite a few times where I'd cry, cry myself to sleep at night, basically, because I just didn't understand why I didn't have a dad, and I wanted one. Uh, I wanted him back. Yeah. So you had no contact with him at all. Very, very little. He um, he he worked up north in the mines, so north of Perth, about fifteen hundred kilometres. There's a huge big iron ore district. And uh, we were living there. And when my parents separated, mum brought us all down. I got a brother and a sister. We all came down to Perth. For that first year, he'd get one week off every month or something like that. So he'd come down now and again and visit us. But after that first year, didn't hear from him for a couple of years, a few years. It was about, uh, I don't know, I was 10 or 11 when he visited. And then visit us in Perth out of the blue and then when I was 15 16 we got a got a phone call out of the blue around Christmas time and that was it never heard from him again so I don't I don't know where he is I don't, I don't even know if he's alive yeah or sure yeah I tried to find him uh, but uh, yeah couldn't couldn't get any details so and you're very close to your mum I think it seems from the story I mean that's an assumption that I'm making <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we all, we it was like we all stuck together because we were the uh, that was it. You know? Yeah, mum's all mum's family was over the other side of the country. And of course, if you know Australia, that's a long way. Yeah, it's <laughs> like London to Moscow away. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, so, and mum was uh, 
Mum was a very strong woman, and she had to be to to do what she did, um, look after three kids like that. And back in those days, there was no there was no welfare system in Australia. They just started bringing in sort of welfare payments and things, but it was so minor. So basically, you had to work to look after yourselves. And uh, yeah, Mum did it tough. You know, for a lot of years here, she basically worked night shift and because that was the best way. That was the most money she could earn. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so everything she had, she gave to us, basically. So. And it seems like, I mean, from, from, from your story, it seems like, to me, like, you were in a, the position of, of, you know, being very aware of your, like, so there's a lot of, I guess, guilt, I guess is the word to use, like when you know that someone is working so hard for you all and you're too young to actually be able to do anything about it. So you're sort of tra- trapped in that sort of a situation. I mean, I I have a lot of guilt in for different reasons of being trapped in a situation where I couldn't stop my mum from being angry and sad and, and all of the mm. things that, that was going on with her in, I mean, between the ages of eight and in 12 similarly to you like the I think they were really important years but I was sort of spent them with my mum and my stepdad like disintegrating as people in the next door room you know I heard all their arguments through the wall yeah. the, the rages and stuff my mum can be quite violent and you know I certainly have a lot of guilt forever <laughs> maybe I, and you know I'm dealing with it better and better and I'm sure as I'm sure you you are but I, I have a lot of guilt on my shoulders from not being able to to be able to, you know, from just being too young to, to, to actually change the situation of the people you care about. So I, I guess that's one of the things I really connect with in your in your mm. storytelling. Another thing that I think probably made you feel different and complicated is that you are a, a tall in, a tall person, <laughs> uh, which I mean. There aren't very many people I've met who are as tall as you, but there are people I've met who are as tall as you. Yeah. But it's it's definitely like, I mean, it depends when, when like, how old were you when you became a tall person? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird yeah. thing to say. Well, there was two, two instances that I remember that really brought it home. One was, was grade five. So I was turning 10, but I hadn't quite turned 10 yet. But I had size ten shoes. Okay, so, right. <laughs> it was like, okay, that's a bit weird. And and because especially, I always just remember it as being funny because Mum had this cliched saying, and whenever she was getting annoyed with us, it was like, act your age, not your shoe size. But for a couple of months, then, <laughs> <laughs> I it was it didn't work. The cliche failed. But um, yes, yeah, so it was that, and just because my my feet were nearly as big as my teachers. Yeah. And yet I was only in grade five in primary school, you know. Um, and uh, and then the other one was that same year, a kid from our primary school had left, gone to another school. And the following year, he came back. And uh, my teacher, Mrs. Parker, still remember her, she, she asked me to take Darren over to the storeroom and get his, get his school books for him, which, you know, one of every book that he needed. And um, so we're walking over there and chatting about his other school and stuff. And I can rem- I distinctly remember noticing that walking along side by side, I was looking down at him on an angle and think I can remember thinking, I don't remember 
having to look down at Darren like that before. And he was looking up at me and I remember him saying, geez, you've really grown. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and then, and then I was... I was like the tallest person in the... I was the tallest kid in the school. I was taller than all the kids in the year above me. And then, So I think that was around that time that I really started to notice. Because, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing is you're, you're a tall person, but you are like... Um, you're, you know, I mean, there, there are one, a, lot, a lot of the things about you challenge stereotypes. So you're, you're, you're Australian and you're tall, but you're very sensitive and kind of softly spoken in some ways. And what kind are of, you saying about Australians? Well, I'm saying, I'm saying that they're clearly not how everyone presents them to be. Yeah. You know? Uh, <laughs> I'd agree with you. Not always that sensitive. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it's like any cliche. It's, 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 it's probably very vastly not true but but uh but i mean there are there probably are some some things that are true about it but 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 certainly you you know you, as someone who's very big but quite sensitive that's kind of an interesting contrast do you know what i mean i mean like i guess people i mean i i guess people expect big people to be sort of uh very like you know I don't really know how to describe it. I suppose, yeah, if, <laughs> if I can interject. If, yeah, please. If, if you don't mind. No, it's, uh, I think in our psyches, when we see something big, it's instantly intimidating or scary. Right. Yeah, there's just right. a, threat, a threat register there. Yes. And probably, you know, going back you know, thousands of years for survival reasons, it's yeah. probably not a bad threat response to have, you know? Yeah, it's instinctual. Uh, yeah. But I think... I don't know, I think there's a reason Roald Dahl wrote BFG. You know, yeah, no, that, absolutely. Is it, there's a, in my experience, a lot of big people are very gentle. M- yeah. Mine too, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, actually, I would say that the all of the tall people I know are in some ways gentle. Yeah. Some of them more than others. Yeah, to, not the not the ones working in world wrestling. But, yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe that's a, and also that's a those things aren't necessarily unrelated because if everybody's scared of you then the sort of way to counteract that is to be gentle is to be kind of less uh in their face when you sort of come into a room like uh you you carry yourself kind of uh, you're quite you ca- you don't carry yourself in, this, in in a sort of strident way i mean and that's what's interesting about when you tell a story i think because i I think you you know you seem quite like maybe you could say introverted maybe I don't know. Oh, definitely, I definitely rate myself that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but then but then when you get up on a on a stage, even though you're still being calm and and the way you deliver a story is very gentle and uh, sensitive, it it you captivate you know it captivates the the room um, in a way that I guess is. It's not exactly extroverted. It's drawing everybody. It's kind of drawing everybody into the introvertedness, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know where that comes from, but uh, well, I, I've, I suppose I've, I've experienced in my life, uh, I guess because I am very shy by nature, and and as a child, because of what was going on at home, I was extremely shy. Probably you know too shy, too too withdrawn. Social skills-wise, I, I suffered, but um, just through lack of experience, you know. But um, so I found that uh, as I kept getting taller and taller, 
and for people listening on uh, well I've shrunk now I'm down to 203 but I used to be centimeters I used to be 205 which was six foot nine so I just got measured the other week I'm six foot eight now wow. so my vertebrae are compacting a bit but uh, okay but <laughs> uh, not a good thing might <laughs> <laughs> get down closer to normal one day but um, yeah I found that I was always I didn't want to be noticed I didn't want to be wrecked I didn't want to stand out I just wanted to be normal and to fit in so maybe maybe that also contributed to to not being you know super outgoing or big or loud or anything like that well, that's the horrific thing about being young maybe being probably being human but where you yeah. you know you, you, you all you want is to fit in but you don't really realize that that's what everybody wants generally yeah. speaking and everybody's feeling insecure and everybody's feeling like uh scared you just feel like you're the only one uh, that certainly was my experience growing up and and then also you, you reach that point where you realize you want to be the same as everyone else but you also want to be at least a little bit different yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always that tipping and that kind of that, that and that yeah. kind of, that 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 tension between those things like you want everyone to accept you but you keep on doing the things that makes them not accept you yeah. <laughs> that was my that was my uh school because uh, i mean i was i was quite severely bullied in school uh and had very very few friends for quite some years and i sort of refused to change in a way that would make me get bullied less you know i kept on banging my head against that that yeah. brick wall of public opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it can be. It's a very strange time, uh, and then you know, and it lasts. It can, you kind of hold the experiences that you had when you were young, though, for the rest of your life. I mean, I think, like one of the things I think is very compelling about the way you tell stories is, you know, I think all of the stories I've heard you tell have been about when you were younger. I mean, you probably yeah. tell stories about other times, but I've not heard them. But it certainly has been a, like, it It seems that that's a kind of area, a time in your life that is very alive for you. You can kind of access it quite easily. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've been going through or experiencing some change over the last uh, year and a half. So I think that's brought a lot of questions up for me and probably why, I, you're right, actually, probably why I've been focusing on the stories of my younger years. I'm trying to sort some things out. And, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'm also at that age. I'm 43, so a prime candidate for midlife crisis. So you, yeah, you want to go back I don't and question know. everything. I feel like I've been having midlife crises <laughs> since I was 22. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know what you're saying. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, but certainly there, I, I do have a lot of stories of, of later on. But uh, I've, I just find it much. Deeper, I'm sure with a lot of people, you just find a much deeper connection to those earlier yeah. years because they're, like, they're foundation years, really, aren't they? You kind so. of when you access those emotions, they're they're unfiltered. Mm. Whereas as an adult, you filter your emotions, and so it's harder to harder to get through all of the things you've repressed about them. Whereas you weren't really repressing them when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you, I, I think you're right. I think you, the memories you have from a childhood are. I mean, they, they could still be slanted, but but they're, mm. they're pretty truthful. They're pretty they raw. Can be slanted, but yeah, yeah. Right. Just because you, you're naive when you're a child, so you don't you don't realise. I think you are more connected, which is some basic emotions there. Yeah, you put up less walls. Yeah, because uh, you haven't worked out how to build them. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. <laughs> you, you know, yes. there's a lot of the time I look back at my childhood and, and think, what I could have done with was some walls. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. So the uh, the second question I ask people, which is coming quite surprisingly late into the conversation, <laughs> is uh, what do you do now? Yeah, well, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm a performer now, and I've, this is one of the things, right? I've been totally rethinking this over the last few months. I was like, what, what am I doing? How shall I title myself? So... Uh, up until last year, I was saying I'm an actor, but now I'm sort of broadening that a little bit and say I'm a performer. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's really changed my life. Yeah, because yeah, you were, like, because having booked you for nights and stuff, I've Googled you quite a few times. Um, and you've definitely, you've done it, you were an actor, like, in Australia for a while. I've sort of seen clips of you in, like, a, a, a cop a cop-based sitcom yeah. type thing. I thought it was very funny, actually. Yeah. Uh, your performances in it. I mean, how did you become an actor? Yeah, well, uh, this is the thing, right? I mean, it's really weird for someone so introverted and shy <laughs> yes. to, yeah. to decide to get out there on stage. I discovered it purely by accident. And in fact, I was just thinking about this earlier in the week. I do remember a couple of moments back in primary school where there was like a school production on or something and normally I'd shy away. There was this one production where I decided to push the boundaries a bit and I acted like a real idiot and it was like too over the top for the teacher. She didn't like it. But I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and But I also look back on it and I think, man, I, di I didn't say boo. I didn't say anything to anyone. I didn't say, I didn't do anything that, that pushed any boundaries at all. And yet, when I was on stage that time, I decided to have fun. And so I think I, that was it, where I just learnt in that moment that when you're on stage, like any world is possible and you've got permission to do all sorts of things that, well, in my case, I didn't give myself permission to do in regular life. Um, then in high school, there was a similar moment. I'd, I'd done a drama class in year 10 because I'd I dropped out of French, so it was a, drama was the only thing that was remotely interesting on the grid line. But I never considered myself an actor. I didn't think I was going to be. And then I forgot all about it. And I was in my mid-twenties, and I was I was become a school teacher. But again, why become a teacher where you have to stand up in front of a group of people and talk when you don't like talking in front of people? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, that's what I did. And um, I went, my first teaching post was out in a little country town in Western Australia. And uh, they had a, a drama club. And anyone who came to the town had to join either a sports club or a couple of the clubs, right? You had to be part of the community. And if you're a teacher, that meant you were automatically in the drama club. Because <laughs> if you can talk in front of a class of kids, then you can, you can yeah. get on stage. Okay. Yeah. And I... I will never, ever forget that, that first show and the first night. Um, I was really nervous, but I walked out on stage. The whole audience laughed. I hadn't even done anything. I just walked on stage, but I had this stupid expression and a fake moustache on. And, uh, and then I delivered my first line, and uh, everybody laughed. And then that was it. I was sold uh, from that point. It was only my first year of teaching, but from that point, I wanted to give up teaching and become an actor. So it took me about... Eight years to get the courage to, to give up regular employment. And then in my early 30s, yeah, I gave up teaching and pursued acting. Yeah. And what, what was pursuing acting like? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, it's definitely, uh, well, as anyone, anybody who's 
performed or gets out in front of people knows it's can be pretty scary sometimes but um I don't know. It's been a, it's been an interesting road, that's for sure. Uh, Not, I mean, the thing is, it's a funny thing to become an actor because you started life with not very much money, and then you you become a teacher. That's kind of like guaranteed money, uh, and then you yeah. you give that up to become an actor. Yeah, it's definitely you know it is. Uh, it's one of the biggest struggles that I've uh, had to deal with. I mean, any before any sort of artist starts, right? It's yeah. The, it's the catch. Um, you're always struggling with the the backup job that pays the bills and mm. the, the the thing that you love and really want to do. So it's always striking that balance. Uh, yeah, but for me, as we've already talked about, some of the stuff going on when you're younger to try and you know have to process constantly process and be reminded of that poverty when you when you didn't enjoy it when you were younger and I'd always promised myself that you know it was a real drive when I was younger that I was going to work and what have whatever job I needed to have so that I never had to go back to that state so there's been times over the last few years where that's really sort of challenged and frustrated me and yeah and probably you know blocked some opportunities as well because uh, there's definitely been times where I've become cautious and uh, focus too much on keeping the backup job and keeping the wages coming in, which meant that I didn't devote enough time to pursuing the acting. So, I mean, I've had some good opportunities, but, yeah. Yeah, sometimes you've just got to... If you're going to jump off the cliff, then you just got to do it, you know? Sure, but yeah. I can totally understand why it's hard to do it if you have if you know what... For you, if you've done it before like if you know what it feels like falling through the air when you've jumped off the cliff yeah. like you don't necessarily want to throw yourself off that cliff again you know yeah. like I think it's it's one of the saddest things I I think about the arts in a lot of ways is that I mean there are always these brilliant exceptions of people coming from working class backgrounds and and really making it and that being their ticket out and that 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 you know musicians or sports people whatever that that's one of the roots out of out of a poor background but but generally speaking people who are, who who have a safety net take the risks and people who don't have the safety net are less likely to and so you end up with people uh in the arts uh, who are middle class who have that safety net and it's much much harder for people without that safety net to break in not yeah. just practically but like you're saying mm. psychologically yeah I also think if, if you can uh, find a way of you know conditioning yourself to, to let to let go of that safety net um, or the idea that you need one yeah then, uh, yeah. then I think you, you will realize your potential because that's that's certainly you know I've just had a bit of a bit of time to sort of low key time for a few months and I've let go of my safety net and, uh, <laughs> and um, it's really you know reflecting back I just thought oh yeah maybe I, I didn't need to to have such a strong safety net right yeah and like if sure. because if you if you go for it really truly go for it with everything you you, you know someone's so driven and ambitious, we'll, we'll get through. Yeah. And, and for me, my safety net was actually staying in Perth because I had a number of contacts there. Um, and so getting the backup job was easy. The downside to that was the acting uh, world in Perth is, is very small. So 
whatever I was going to achieve was always going to be on a very small scale. And the ability to, to break through is practically non-existent. Mm. Like it would take a rare alignment of the planets to bring a major film to Perth. <laughs> and for me to get a role. Yeah, be seen, exactly. You know, and all if, of that. Even if it comes to Perth, it's going to be other people yeah. acting in it from, that they bring yeah. in, you know. Yeah, yeah. like I'd need a major film who was looking for an unknown tall actor to be the lead. Now, yeah. That is, that is you, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this, that is your kind of trump card though, that yeah, you are like yeah. taller than most people and therefore that's a, a, a strength and a weakness in terms of it, it, it means that you might get cast in tall parts because you're, you're the tallest guy in the room, but it means that you might get typecast into tall parts. Yes, so, it's, so, it's so like a yeah, it's brought me work and it's denied me work. Yeah, yeah. so it, it certainly it balances. But I think, um, yeah, going back to that point of if I was to really pursue my dream, I needed to leave Perth a lot sooner. Yeah. And I, I didn't because I wanted my safety net. It's so. really hard, though, to leave places where you've got a safety like where you're, like, I mean, we were talking earlier on off mic, I mean, uh, mm. uh, and I, I had a sort of similar sort of, feeling before coming to London of like I know I have to go somewhere where there's opportunities but I've got it figured out here I can function here and I, I don't know if I can when I go there and, mm. and I took that risk but I think I mean I do I do sometimes I'm I sort of wonder if you know like you know like I wasn't brought up to be worried about taking risks you know, and so like I'm pri- privileged in that respect. Yeah, right. um, that is a gift. Yeah, no, and it, and it is a gift. And I, there are lots of things that weren't gifts about my upbringing, but but that 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 that, that the uh, the class element is uh, certainly a gift. To, I mean, if, even if I make much less money than a lot of people who I went to university with, let's say I went to university, you know, and I, a lot of people I went to school with didn't, you know. Mm. So yeah, yeah. You moved from Perth, you got rid of your safety net, and you took the risk. You, you, you worked in Cirque du Soleil. Cir- oh, I can't even say it. Cir- I cir- I can- it's one of those words that I see written down all the time. <laughs> I, no, so uh, many of my friends have done this. They've called it They've called it so many different versions of yeah. names. But yeah, yeah, I'm Cir- Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. Cirque yes. du Soleil. That's the problem. I'm really bad with like, any word that is not like that I'm not used to. Yeah, look, that is, that's a whole mega story all on its own, actually. But I, I started producing my own, uh, or creating my own one-man shows. Excellent. And yeah. um, that was my ticket out of Perth. I just, I started getting frustrating there. With the, so were they storytelling shows? No, no, actually, the first one was regular acting. Uh, regular. <laughs> um, so it was, just, it was a, a really nice, uh, it's pretty gritty sort of film noir kind of uh, theatre piece written by an Irish guy called Conor McPherson, who's, um, well, this was one of his first pieces, but he's gone on to write a pretty pretty big award-winning plays. But um, and it's just about an ex-IRA sort of standover man, a bit of a thug, who gets in a whole bunch of trouble and... Uh, Unwittingly, and is chased across Ireland, and he takes a child and a, and a woman as, as his hostage. And um, yeah, it's it's a, actually it's a beautiful story. And because uh, yeah, 
it's very extremely detailed and layered and uh, yeah it really builds to a pretty fine climax so I, I, I performed it in Perth and I took it out uh, went to a big fringe festival in Australia called uh, Adelaide which right. is sort of like their version of Edinburgh yeah and, no, I've uh, heard of the Adelaide fringe and uh, then I took it to the Canada Fringe, to a couple of cities over there. Oh, wow. They run in, uh, through the summer months. And a lot smaller scale than, much smaller scale than Edinburgh, but uh, it's good. It means you've got a fair chance of selling tickets. So that's yeah. kind of nice. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> and uh, I just met a whole, you know, I didn't even know the Canada Fringe existed until some, someone had told me about it. And uh, it was really cool. So I went back the next year and I, I devised my own show for that. Performed it in Perth to work it up, and then uh, toured through four four fringes in Canada. That went really well. And then in 2011, I took the same show back again and did five different cities in Canada. And it was when I was in Toronto that uh, a talent scout from Cirque du Soleil was seeing a whole bunch of shows and inviting people to auditions on the weekend. And I didn't even know that that was going on. And then I got this message to... That this dude wanted to see me, I started freaking out, and then uh, yeah, I tried to talk my way out of it and say, oh, "I'm not a clown, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I can't juggle, and uh, <laughs> you know, all this sort of stuff." <laughs> talk about safety nets, and then uh, <laughs> and then um, he just convinced me that everything in my show was exactly what they were looking for. And don't worry, he's laughed. Actually, he said, "Don't worry about the juggling. We've got people who do juggling." I think he looked at me and just thought, there's no way this guy can juggle. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, he convinced me to come along. And I, like, I had never experienced anybody saying such uh, complimentary and heartfelt things about my performance before. Um, especially someone from, you know, such a... a Prestigious. A place, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it sort of blew me away. I remember walking home that night being sort of emotionally devastated, but, but in a great way, you know. And uh, got up the next day and went to the audition and I was in a bit of a daze. It was, it was actually perfect because I didn't have time to think about it. It's <laughs> crucial. Yeah. It is absolutely crucial. Yeah. So same thing, man. Sometimes it's just better to throw yourself into it. Yeah. But uh yeah, and um, so I just spent the whole audition trying to breathe and not think because that is my biggest uh, biggest uh, threat to myself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I did all right till the very last exercise and then I, I felt like I'd, I didn't do well and I'd convinced myself that, uh, that I didn't do well. And then three weeks later I was performing in Calgary by then and I got a phone call, and they said, we've got a job for you. Six months doing the show Corteo, you'll be playing the giant clown. Do you want it? And my first response was, is that it? <laughs> I, think, I think it sounded like I was, like, disappointed, but I was just like, is that, you know, I thought, that surely there's a couple more rounds yeah, of audition. I mean, yeah, and I was yeah, like, is that it? And she went, that's it. <laughs> I was like... I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So of course, I just said yes straight away. And I would have thought you were about to do more auditions. That's how I would have felt. Yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and then they, they taped the uh, the group audition at the time, and he took it back to Montreal, their headquarters, and showed it to the casting director, and 
I had a look and went, yep, yep, he'll be able to do it. So, um, yeah. So, that's so you sort of toured six months touring with Cirque du Soleil, got it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Across Europe. Then. Yeah, that was just last year, so July to December. And uh, yeah, went to uh, Belgium, Antwerp, and uh, then to Zurich, and then Dusseldorf and Berlin. And it was... Uh, yeah, it was like you know, a month and a half in each city kind of thing. And uh, wow, well, Berlin's—I I, the only oh, one I know really well is Berlin, Berlin but I got friends there, and yeah, it's an amazing city. I think it's, yeah. yeah. I, if I had to, if I had to live in another European city that wasn't London, and it had to be in a different country, I probably would choose Berlin. Yeah, yeah, I could do that too. Yeah. yeah. So that was um, <laughs> that was my awesome Cirque experience, and then that's uh, you know. My, as we were talking about earlier, my wife's from the UK, so we've come over here now and looking to to stay here for a few years. So, yeah, so it was that whole thing of letting go of my safety net, trying something new, going over to Canada, led to something uh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, what is London like compared to Perth and <laughs> Australia, you know? Uh, dense... <laughs> uh, fast, uh, manic, exciting, yeah, alive. Yeah, I think it's the first time I've sort of felt alive living in a place. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things about Perth. Probably also a lot of UK travellers, well, some UK travellers perhaps have passed through there, and uh, you know they, it's it's an easy place to to uh, enjoy because it feels so lazy. You just I don't know sometimes you just feel like a bit of a sloth. It's because you know, it's so hot, so you can't move fast. <laughs> um, but it's just I don't know, it's partly the Australian way, but then also Perth is. Uh, it's a little bit outback, really, you know. Um, it's almost being rural. Yeah. So the way of life has just slowed right down. And, and I really noticed, I went back to Perth for a visit last month. And that first day there, it was just like, oh, my Lord, yeah. Definitely not in London now. Just like, it seemed like the traffic was driving slowly. And there was just like one or two cars on a main road. And uh, everybody just... Like floats around by comparison. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. It's. I mean, it's. It's. It's definitely frantic. Even for like, I, as I was saying off night before. I mean, even if you come from a different part of the UK, like London is intense. Yeah. Uh, in in very good ways and very bad ways. It's like a, a mixture of like it can be overpowering and it can be absolutely uplifting. Like you can be. Like you can feel like, like you say, alive, vibrant. Like those are the kinds of feelings you can have. But then other other days you can be over, you know, overwhelmed and every, you know, like you just you feel like such a small thing in this like uh, warren of franticness going around you, and you just sort of it feels like you it's so much bigger than you are, yeah. um, which can be be a, a hard thing too. But but when you when you're kind of running with the 
when when you're running with the stream, I guess when you're like moving with the city, it, yeah, that's when it that when, that's when it really works. Like it took me like a, it took me a year to like work London out, like to even which was weird because I've got family here, and yeah. so I've been coming to London all my life. In fact, like I live in a place where I've always visited like nearly all my life. So I thought, oh yeah, I know London. But then it's different if you come for a holiday than if you come to live, you know, that's what I discovered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you're really going to immerse into it. And well, and there's just so many, such a vast landscape to discover. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah I've been here like, I don't know, coming up for 10 years, I reckon, and uh, seven between seven and 10 years, really bad with numbers. And, and I'm, it's just now working out how bits of this jigsaw puzzle fit together. Like you go, oh, hang on, I can walk from that place to that place, and I never, never knew I could before. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah, an endless kind of puzzle to work out, and yeah. you kind of get rewarded every time you work out a new bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the the last question that I ask people is, and it's a weird one because. Well, it's it's always a weird one. I don't know, what, but I've, it's even weirder now. I've started prefacing it with "it's a weird one," but the the question is, do you have anything to plug? And people often plug practical things that they do their projects, which you should absolutely do. But the other thing that people have started doing, and so because some people have started doing it, I'm trying to allow everyone the opportunity <laughs> to do it, is plugging, you know larger ideas or thoughts about the world or things that they've learned or, or things like that so mm-hmm. it's as open as that you can really choose whatever <laughs> cool. thanks dave that is a very <laughs> generous question and quite timely because just the other day i was completely blown away by a website that i found uh, it's a uk one called uh, general assembly and it's uh, oh, I can't quite remember their, their sort of tagline, but it's about their, they assist people to convert thinking into actual creations. And so you go on their website and they've just got, if you look at their Twitter feed, there's just so many, so many things there each day. And it's just links to all these other amazing and totally inspirational websites. And I, I only got to the second Twitter and then spent about five hours doing all this other research, right? And it's just about all these wonderful new developments, um, social enterprises and so on. So I won, one was a company called Socket. It's based in the East Coast in the States. And it started up by a couple of women who were studying... Um, technical engineering or something like that in in the US and uh, they've they as one of their class projects they created a soccer ball that could produce a small amount of electricity just by rolling around it must have some little dynamo gadget in it and so they've created this into uh, this product called socket and basically they're selling it to provide cheap uh, free electricity and light okay. to you know in poor areas of the world. They were. It's like at the end of the day, you plug a little lamplight into it. Wow. And so, so you know, like you or me, we, we could buy it as a cool little desk feature in our study. But um, in other parts of the world, of course, it's, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's imperative. essential. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and there was just business after business like this. And then the other one was Coursera. Uh, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A. 
And uh, that's a company that's based in the US, and they have organised with a number of key universities. I think they've got about is it 300 courses from quite a few different um, universities. One of them is Stanford, who offers a lot. But basically, it, it's totally abolished the traditional model of going to university. And uh, this one, you can just take online courses just randomly, and it costs almost nothing. You don't get an official degree out of it, but you do get a certificate acknowledging your completion. Um, But it's exactly the same. The course is set up and assessed by a university lecturer from from Stanford or Pennsylvania State or whatever it is. And you just go check it out. And it's all about a quality of education, taking education all over the world, or at least where there's an internet connection. Yeah. Um, instead of just the people who have $200,000 to, to do a degree. And I just thought, yeah. that just blew me away. That's great. Idea. And, uh, you know, I've signed up for a couple of courses straight cool. away. Yeah, yeah. It was just incredible. So, and there, there was so much more. But, yeah, that website, General Assembly, just led to a whole new world of innovation. That sounds like the sort of thing I'm going to end up following on Twitter on the way home and then <laughs> uh, lose a few weeks of my life. <laughs> But no, yeah, that's great. Um, and I mean, you, so with storytelling, like, uh, is that one of the, that's one of the things you're looking to develop as a as a performer? I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's why I've changed my persona from from just an actor to to a performer. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Something has really ignited me with the storytelling, especially here in London, because. Uh, you know, back home, I get to do it like two or three times a year, and uh, here there's just opportunities every month. Yeah, well, so, Sparks got three a month, but there's also other places as well. I mean, uh, yeah, that's uh, there's a new one in uh, Camden that I've been meaning to get along to to check out, but they're doing a storytelling night in Camden uh, on Wednesdays as well, right. so you should oh, check that okay. out. Yeah, you know, I found one called Raw, which is over, I think it's Bethnal Greenway, oh, okay. it's on Monday night. Oh, it's on a Monday. Yeah, okay. and oh, right. so I can't remember. Well, I'll check that out because yeah. you know, I'm always looking to to because at Spark we like to promote other other storytelling events that aren't aren't our own to sort of maximise the amount of people who are getting to tell their stories. Although there might be a conflict of interest if it's on a Monday night. No, I think it's on the one Monday that Spark is not. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, that yeah. is excellent. Yeah, is that, uh, is that right? Is next Monday the down? Uh, this is coming. It's. Uh, this Monday will st- will be will be a down one, I think. Yeah, we're the first Monday, the second Monday, and the third Monday yeah. every month. So this this one's on the last. So oh, brilliant! Well, that's excellent. Well, I'll check that out as well. And I'll yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm writing the newsletter for Spark later today, so I'll probably even include that in that if I can find them online. Yeah. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Alan, and thanks very much for having me into your home, making me some excellent pita bread pizzas, <laughs> and uh, and for having this conversation with me it's been really nice my pleasure Dave thanks for the opportunity the last thing that I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience goodbye everybody hope you had a great day bye I'm at the Fiddler's Elbow downstairs with an hour of tragic variety every night at 6.30 till 7.30 from the 3rd to the 14th of August as part of the Free Fringe. Getting Better Acquainted will be at the Banshee Labyrinth on the 12th and 13th 
of August at 1.40 till 2.40. There's a Spark London workshop that I'm running on the 8th of August downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow, 12.15 till 1.15. Check out the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. Really great one coming up on Friday with Josie Long. And of course, don't forget, there'll be another episode of Getting Better Acquainted this Friday. That's going to be a conversation with Daniel Simpson, who is a very interesting guy. He's had a very interesting life. He's another person who I met through Spark, and he's another person who's performed at Stand Up Tragedy. And he is going to be performing up in Edinburgh during our run. So if you like what you hear of him on Friday and you're coming up to the festival, we'll have a look and see which nights he's performing at and you can maybe come and see him live. Alan sadly isn't going to be with us for this Edinburgh Festival. Who knows about future times? I certainly would love to book Alan again for different stand-up tragedy nights that happen in the future. But at the moment, I'm only really thinking as far as the end of the festival. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.